Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Texarkana celebrated its 150th anniversary as a city. And uh, there were celebrations that went on throughout the year, but it all culminated on December 8th with the 150th anniversary of Texarkana. And so if you tracked with some of that, a lot of times they talked about some of the things that were kind of cool about Texarkana. And uh, one of the things that they talked about Texarkana is that it is where Smokey and the Bandit takes place. I mean, now there was a lot more important things than Smokey and the Bandit, but if you're just born under a rock, Smokey and the Bandit, the the movie 50 years ago, a lot of it started here. And of course, this is Burt Reynolds. Now, you people that are, you know, just too young to know, this guy's cool, okay? And and uh, I. I could describe him in other ways, but this is church, and we don't do that in church. But, uh, I mean, Burt Reynolds was, was it, and he's the star of Smokey and the Bandit. And, uh, you know, when, when I saw them refer to Smokey and the Bandit a few times, I remembered something that I read about Burt Reynolds about five or six years ago when he actually died. You know, it's interesting. Burt Reynolds was a tough guy a cool guy. He was a ladies' man. But as he got older, like what often happens, is he kind of let the guard down, and he got a little bit more transparent and a little bit more honest. And I remember reading, shortly after he died, someone referring to an interview that he gave not long before he got sick and started his last season of life. And he talked about how that tough guy image that he had, the ladies' man image that he had, he said, I was just acting. That wasn't me at all. He said, deep inside of me, I'm the most insecure guy you'll probably ever meet. Unstable. And he said, you know, I've never really been able to sustain a long-term relationship with, with anyone, some woman, guys that I wanted to be friends with, I just, I'm a wreck. This whole tough guy, ladies man, it's just all part of the act. And, and interestingly, not the writer of the, author, of the article, but Burt Reynolds himself said, you know what, I think it all goes back to the relationship I had with my dad. And he went on to talk about how his, he grew up in a little small town and his dad was the sheriff. And his dad was a tough guy. You know, he kicked in doors and he would, went toe-to-toe with bad guys and he wasn't afraid of anyone. And Bert said, you know, I never was close to my dad. I never could measure up to him. He said, I never once remember my dad saying, I love you. I never once remember my dad hugging me or touching me affectionately. He never kissed me. He said there was, I mean, and here's Burt Reynolds. And, I mean, he was in the 70s and the early 80s. I mean, he was a very successful actor as far as Hollywood's concerned. 
Burt Reynolds says, I can only remember one time my dad ever said, I'm proud of what you've accomplished. And he related all of his insecurities and his trouble with relationships and, and uh, the fact that he had to act 24-7, 365, because that really wasn't him, all back to the fact that he never, ever really felt unconditionally loved by his father. His words, not mine. You know, he's not alone. He's not alone. The world is full of people that feel that. And I'll bet there's probably a few of us here today that when we sit and think back on the relationship we have with our father, or had with our father, if our father's already passed, it wasn't so great. And what did we do? We ran away. We maybe didn't run away, but we ran away emotionally, distant. We established some space. It was, it was like an arm's length relationship. But you know, here's, here, here's, here's the, the truth, and I'm going to make a real quick transition. This is the wonderful thing that we know, or at least we should know. Our heavenly father is not like our earthly father. You know, in fact, I, I really think all of us would do well to remember that line in Hebrews chapter 13 about how our fathers disciplined us. Do you remember what it says next? As best they knew how. I mean, I know there were some evil fathers out there. But for the most part, and I can... I can say this with experience because I got seven of them. Sometimes us dads are stupid. We're dumb. We don't know what to do and we do the wrong thing. And as the writer of Hebrews said, our fathers disciplined us as best they knew how, but then he transitions and he talks about how there is a father who loves us unconditionally. You, you might be here today and you've got the best father you could have but even that father isn't as good as God you have a heavenly father I have a heavenly father who is this absolute perfect father I, re I remember hearing someone say you know quit talking about God being a father because it just it rubs me wrong because my dad was so bad and and you know, I kind of had to respectfully say, you know what? Don't think of God like your father. Think of God as the father of fathers. Here's what I want you to get today. You've got a God that loves you unconditionally, who, who will go to the deepest pit to grab you and try to bring you back and call you home. That's what the parable in Luke chapter 15 is all about. Now, I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 15. And what I'm going to do, this is, this is familiar territory, I think, to most of us. And so we're going to step through it rather quickly because I want to get to an application point that I think is super important. 
And it's what I want you to take into this, year, this new year. In Luke chapter 15, just jump into the story. Jesus is mixing it up with the, the religious leaders. And they have big issues with him that he's hanging around sinners, tax collectors, uh, people that weren't loyal to Israel, they thought, and uh, sinners and, and other kinds of low-level people. And, and essentially, Jesus said, okay, one, one last time, let me just give it to you. And so you look at verse uh, 3, it says, and he told them this parable. And I find that really fascinating because even though as you read the rest of the chapter, it's like, no, he told three parables. But Luke says, no, it was just one parable. You know, he was a good preacher. Preachers normally have three points. Well, he had one point, two points, three points, but they actually all were the same point. He told this first parable or this first story about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and one of them went off. And he left the 99, and he went out and searched diligently for that lost sheep. And he said, that's what God's like. God will go out and hunt down the lost sheep, leave the 99 by themselves, because he cares so much about that one individual. That was the part about the seeking shepherd. Then you skip over to verse 8. He tells about this searching wife. He says there's this woman and she had 10 coins that were just, you know, part of her jewelry, part of the, the way she adorned herself, and she lost one of them. And what did she do? I mean, she was frantic. You know, she didn't sit and say, well, at least I still got nine, you know. No, she went after that one coin and she did all kinds of things. She turned that house upside down until she found that one coin. And then Jesus said, let me tell you another story that illustrates this same point. And I'm calling that one the, par the story about the welcoming father. And here's what I want to do. I actually want to read this to you. It starts in verse 11. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate that falls to me. And, he, and so the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, that younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be in need. And he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent, to, sent him into his fields to feed the swine. Good little part-time job for a good Jewish boy, watching the pigs. Verse 16, and he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one was giving him anything. And when he came to his senses, verse 17, he said to himself, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I'm going to get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be your called your son. 
Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and he came to his father. And, and while he was still a long way off, his father, who obviously must have been looking for him, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let's eat and be merry for this son of mine who is dead. He's come back to life again. He was lost, and he's been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was out in the fields when he came and approached the house. He heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what about, about these things, what these things might be. And the servant said to the son, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. He said to, to him, The older son said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to the older son, my child, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he's begun to live. He was lost, and now he's been found. You know, when Jesus told that third story, he started now adding a lot of details that he didn't have in the story about the shepherd or the story about the wife that lost part, one of her jewelry. He started telling more about not just what the searcher is like, but he told about what the person being searched for was like. I mean, you just sit and think about this story. Two sons, wealthy man, two sons. And one of them says, I want my inheritance now. Well, you know, the only way for that father to give him his inheritance now would have been for him to be dead. So essentially, that younger son, in, in just total disrespect, is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want any kind of relationship with you. I just want your money. And so what does the father do in Jesus' story? Father figures out how to liquidate enough of his assets to give it to that younger son. And what does the younger son do? He goes out and he wastes it. 
squanders it, gets as far away from home as he possibly can, and he ends up doing some of the things that, you know, at least according to the way he was raised, would be some of the most despicable things. That's what that sheep that went off that the shepherd went and looked for, that's the kind of sheep it was. That's the kind of coin it was. That's the kind of son it was. And yet that father was still going to welcome him home, was still going to go out there and look down the road regularly, just hoping day after day after day after day that that kid might be coming home. And we know the story, beautiful story. The guy finally comes home. He's got it all laid out, what he's going to say. He's just going to ask his dad for a job. You know, I'm not worthy. I've sinned big time. Would you mind just hiring me entry level? I mean, he never gets to that point. He just admits his wrong, and the father welcomes him in throws this lavish party for him. But you know, it's interesting, the, 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 the younger son wasn't the only son, was he? There was this older brother. And obviously, from the way he reacted, you can see that that older son, although he maybe never went off, he maybe never had the guts to say to his dad, I wish you were dead. I don't really want any kind of relationship with you. I just want your money. He still had the same kind of heart. The younger son had a heart that just opened it up with his actions. The, younger, the older son had a heart that just kept it all stuffed in. But he still was distant from the father. Here's the bottom line. This is the big point that Jesus is making through all of these things. He wants us to know that God loves us and wants us back. God wants us to come back to him. He wants a relationship with us. And, and I, I imagine in this room, as you read through this story, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of assume here, and I know this is a bad assumption, but I'm still going to assume it, that we have relationship with God. And so you might be sitting and thinking, you know what, I'm a lot more like that younger son. Because, man, I, I sowed some wild oats. I did some, some things that I really shouldn't have done. And just by... The grace of God, I came to my senses and came back, and God welcomed me in. You know, I, I'll just be honest with you. I'm ashamed to admit it. I don't relate to that guy. You know who I relate to? I relate to the older son. And I've told you a thousand times, I was born on a Sunday. I was in church the next Sunday. I'm the most churched person you've ever met. I'm obnoxious about it. You know, it's just terrible. But it I remember being at a party years ago. It's one of those Christian parties, and then uh, the icebreaker was, tell us about someone in the Bible you relate to really well. You know, and someone's talking about Peter and John, and, 
you know, Moses, and I said, the older brother. That's me. Because it's true. You know? I mean, it's, I've got that tendency to, to be a lot more like the Pharisee that Jesus was talking to. The younger brother, he's more like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The older brother's more like the scribes and Pharisees who still had a cold, wicked, evil heart. Now, either way, the truth of the matter is still what Jesus was putting out there is, I want you back. God wants to welcome you back. And I'm just going to stop right here for a moment. Have you come back? Have you come back? Whether you, whether you were the younger son and you've been to the pig pen or whether you were the older son and you just wish you had the guts to go to the pig pen. You wish you had the guts to have squandered everything with the prostitutes at the, wherever he lost all the money. Because both of them were off, but the invitation was for both of them to come into the house. Have you come into the house? Have you come to the Father? I mean, have you in faith trusted in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary? If you're not sure about that question right there, everything I'm going to say for the next 10, 12 minutes Just tune it out because all I want you to sit and think about is, have I come back? Did I come? God has called me home. And I've got a God that loves me and sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for me. And it's as simple as what the Apostle Paul said to a jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on him for eternal life. Believe that that you are this sinner in need of a Savior and Jesus came to be that Savior. And if, if you've never come to that place in your life, if you think that by being here or putting money in our baskets or being a faithful husband or a faithful wife or a good father or a good mother or, you know, a decent employer or a decent employee, if you think that's getting you some merit with God, it isn't. Because the only thing that gets you merit with God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to give you his righteousness. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, that's what there is for you. Now, I'm going to make another assumption. I'm going to assume that many, maybe even most, could even be 100% of us, have done that. We've come back to the house. Oh, we, we struggle with our attitudes. Sometimes we struggle over the guilt we feel that we squandered so much out there in the pig pen or the things we did while we were out there at the pig pen. And some of us, you know, are that older brother, and we, we go back and forth, you know, feeling jealous of the grace that God gave to someone else because we're, we're so humanly speaking blinded, and we don't realize that we got just as much grace because God saved our evil heart. 
just like he saved that person's evil heart. But, but I'm going to assume that if you're here and, and you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you, you've come to that place in your life and you realize it's not me, it's not what I do, it is what Jesus Christ did, and I do have a relationship with Christ, and I am welcomed back into the party. That's the rest of what I've got to say is for us, okay? So if you're here today and, and that's where you are, you, you've said, I did come back. I've come in. I've trusted. I've believed. I, I have that relationship with Christ. I struggle with it sometimes, but I have that relationship with Christ. What does God want for you? What does God want for me? What, what does this passage tell us? Now I'm just going to skip ahead here on my slides because I got behind. Here's the first one. Come home. That was for those that have never come home. Here's what I want for the rest of us, for those of us that say we have come home. Be like the Father. Be like the Father. Be like the shepherd. Be like the wife. Be like the Father. Let me talk to you for just a minute here with the time I've got left. You know, we are living in a really, a time that, is, it, that historians are going to look back on, and they're going to say, that, that, that was a huge time. There have been three or four times in the history of our country when there have been major religious shifts, when, you know, let's just say church participation, the percentage of people participating in it really changed. One was way back in the 1700s. They call it the Great Awakening. And in the course of 20, 30, 40 years, just the number of people, the percentage of people that went to church just dramatically increased. So much so that no matter where, you know, secular historians, church historians will point to the Great Awakening of the 1700s. And then about 50 years later, there was a second Great Awakening, and then there was just tons of people that, that went back to church and renewed their relationship with Jesus Christ, and lots of people got saved. You know, there was a third one shortly after the Civil War in the late 1800s. I mean, church attendance just really went up. People were like, man, you know, our nation has just gone through this thing that practically ripped it apart, and we're just kind of sewing it back together by threads. And God moved in the hearts of lots of people, and church attendance really increased. Now, I know church, we're just measuring church attendance because that's kind of the, this measurable thing. You know, you can, that's a statistic you can tell. But, you know, when people are going back to church, that says there must have been some kind of heart change. There must have been some kind of relationship change with God. They've come to realize, I need a relationship with Christ. I, I have to be in sync with him. We're now experiencing that same kind of religious shift. For the fourth time, there is now a major change in church attendance, which would suggest that there's a major change in people's relationship with God. But you know what's unique about this shift? And I'm not just talking about since the pandemic. This has been going on for 30 years. 
For the last three decades, there's been this major shift in church participation. But this one's unique. You know why? Because this is a shift away from church. In fact, now, for one of the first times in all history, there are fewer people that go to church than there are who do not go to church. In fact, among us evangelicals, that's what we are, people that actually believe the Bible, take it at face value, and basically believe Jesus died for our sins, and, you know, through simple faith and trust in him, that's what an evangelical is. We, we, we actually believe this thing, not just, you know, have it on an altar and just do religious stuff, but we actually are serious about it. Evangelicals are a smaller percentage of our nation than people that are nuns. Now, I'm talking about nuns, Catholic nuns. I'm talking about N, I don't even know how to spell it, N-O-N-E-S. People that say, I'm nothing. In other words, there's a major shrinkage in just participating in church, which suggests there's a major change in people's relationship with God. Here, here's the bottom line. Let me, get, let me just kind of get it a little bit more specific, and then I'm going to wrap it up. I'll, we'll finish on time, I promise you. They estimate that over the last 20 years, 25 years, there are now 40 million adults who used to go to church and actually be really a part of that church, and now they are totally detached from a church. They might still be a member of a church, but they haven't been to that church in years. They, they, they don't even get there Christmas and Easter. And if they do, they may not even go to the church that they're supposedly a member of. They're just totally de-churched. 40 million of them. And here's the deal. When I first read this last fall, and I started thinking about it, and the wheels started turning... All of a sudden, I sat and I thought of this family, and this family, and this friend, and this acquaintance. And, and within just a few moments, I sat and thought of three or four families, three or four couples, three or four individuals that I know who used to be right in the thick of the church, and now they don't even go. Not at all. And uh, I thought, that's who these people are talking about. They're de-churched. They're part of the 40 million. And, you know, as a pastor, I'm particularly sensitive to that because, you know, I see those situations up close. Because I see someone get into a situation where there's some tragedy you know, there's some major surgery they have. There's some death in the family that they have. There's some marital strain that, that went on. Maybe the marriage even dissolved. And there is absolutely no spiritual community to support them. There, there's, no, there's no local church to help them. Oh, they used to have it five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But they've just so totally detached. 
Well, how'd that happen? Well, you know, we, we can see it easily in the pandemic. People just got out of the habit. But it's been, like I said, it's been going on for 20, 25 years. And you know the way it happened? It's just life. Some of it was just totally inadvertent. You know, we get a new job, so we moved to this town. And, you know, first thing we got to do is get settled into the job. We got to find a house. We got to find a neighborhood. And we got to get the kids into school. And we got to figure out, you know, this soccer league or that soccer league or this baseball team or that baseball team and, and all that stuff. And it's like church was the last thing they needed to find. And after they'd been there nine months, you know, they hadn't even gone to a church. And now it's like, well, we're just tuckered out. And, you know, it is kind of nice, you know, on Sundays, you know, because you get to drink three cups of coffee, you get to read the paper, and you even get to watch the 12 o'clock kickoff in the fall and whatever they have in the spring, you know, watch the golf tournament. And so church just became not there. Well, we, man, when we were in Dallas, we went all the time, but then we moved to Little Rock, and we never went. Then we moved to Texarkana, and man, we don't have, we have no connection. And you know, what's really tragic to me as a pastor is I see that, and then I see something happen, and they're like this little dinghy out there in the ocean, and the waves of life just swamp them all the time. And they go through divorce, or they go through a surgery, or they go through a death, and they're having to do it all by themselves. Hopefully they live in a neighborhood that, you know, looks up and says, oh, so-and-so has something. I might want to take a cobbler over to them. Well, great. Cobbler is not a replacement for a church. Here's my point. Remember I said that I think one of the takeaways we ought to have from this parable, we need to be like the shepherd, we need to be like the wife, we need to be like the father, and go find them. I'll bet, I'll bet you know, if you'll just sit and think about it, this is, this is kind of like the low-hanging fruit, I'll bet you will come up with three or four names of people that you knew that used to be right in the thick of it, and now they hardly ever darken the door of a church. And you know what's interesting, according to the research? About half of them said, I would love to be invited to church. I just need that oomph and a little bit of accountability to get me there. Now, about half of them, the other half, they kind of have some issues. They, you know, they might have been hurt by the church. Maybe they, you know, and so they, they're not really sure. And just a casual invitation to them might be just like rubbing salt in the wound. What they need is, is not just a casual, hey, you ought to come to my church. What they need is someone who loves them and a relationship with them. And they could see that perhaps they threw the baby out with the bathwater. But either way, I'll bet you know three or four folks that used to be inside the house enjoying the party, and now they're outside. And let me tell you, that is a vulnerable place for anyone to be, for, for a believer to be separated away from the body of Christ, from the local church, 
just the, the fellowship, the accountability, the, the opportunity to serve. That's it. To be separated from that, that's exactly where Satan wants each and every one of us. That's one of the reasons you'll, you'll hear me say from time to time, run to the center of the church. It's, it's the safest thing. The church, I honestly believe it, is one of the most underutilized assets that anyone could have. We hardly ever take advantage of all that we could. And those of you that are in the thick of the church, you, you may not recognize it, but I'll bet you do if you really sat and thought about it. This church has really assisted you so that you've got the marriage that you have, so that your kids have done as well as they have, that, that you've been able to walk through the difficulties of life. Because you know you've got a couple dozen people that are standing shoulder to shoulder with you, praying for you, loving you, seeking you out. So here, here, here's, here's, here's my takeaway, and then I'm going to quit. I want you, as God, assuming, you've got, assuming you come home, and you've been to the house, and you're enjoying the party, I want you to take it the next step and be like the Father. And I want you to go outside to that person who used to be inside, if you will, and invite them in. You know, if you know someone that used to come to this church, invite them, and they're not going someplace else, invite them back. If you know someone that used to go to another church, and you know that's to be a good church, man, encourage them. You ought to go back to your... No, I'm sorry you had that experience, but you ought to go back to that church. I'm not talking about this for us. I'm talking about this for Christ. It's like Christ has, has these people outside in the yard and they think they're fine. And truth of the matter is we all should know they're vulnerable because the safest place for a believer is in the midst of the community of Christ. That's where you're going to grow. That's where that vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ is going to flourish so, so here's, here's your homework, and, and, and really, I don't want this just to be a one-and-done thing, you know, that you'll think about and then forget about. I mean, honestly, I want to try to put this in front of you regularly. If you know someone that used to be, if you know one of those 40 million people, if they're in the half, if they're one of the 20 million that are just needing a little nudge and encouragement to come on back, whether it's to come here or to some other church on Moore's Lane. Well, there's one I don't want you to go to, but uh, um, maybe a couple more. I don't know. But, uh, you know, <laughs> encourage them. Invite them. Encourage them. That is, that is just kind of low-hanging fruit you, where you could, could be like the Father and say, come on in. Come all the way in. If you know someone like that, Invite them. Encourage them. If you know someone that was, say, in the other 20 million that was hurt by the church, maybe the church didn't respond well when they went through that divorce, or maybe the church didn't come to their aid when there was that surgery, or, or maybe just the church really did wrong in that situation, and it really made a mistake, maybe even was sinful. 
What that person needs is a relationship with you to show them that, yes, God's people are sinful and sometimes stupid, but Christ loves you and he still wants you in the party, in the house. And maybe you have a relationship with that person and you never once feel like they're to the point where they get that invitation to come on home. But you're helping to be one of those that God is using to soften that hardened heart so that they could come back in. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the fact that you love us. And you love us so much that you sent your only begotten son to die for us. I mean, you've invited us to your house. And Father, if there's someone here today that has never responded to that invitation, I pray that they would trust in Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. And Father, for the rest of us, I ask, Father, that you would give us a sensitivity that we'd lift our heads up and not be so consumed with our stuff that we could see in that acquaintance, that friend, maybe that relative who used to be walking with you in the midst of the community of Christ. And we could see that that person needs a little nudge, a little love, to step back into the community, to come back to church, to come back to a relationship, a corporate relationship with you in worship and mission. Father, I pray that uh, today we would, uh, we'd be like you. We would welcome your children that come home. And we'd encourage them to do so. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.